Let's give Joe and the choir another hand. Wasn't that a great, <clears throat> a great, great song? Thank you guys for, uh, for getting it ready and easy to preach behind. 1990-1991, America went to war with Iraq. You guys were in diapers or weren't around yet. But most of us, a lot of us, oh, we remember it, don't we? Saddam Hussein. And uh, there is the, uh, the dead uh, emperor or dictator. Saddam said before the war started that this was going to be the mother of all wars. He changed his mind after we whipped him in about three days and two hours. You remember that? <laughs> Come on, guys, a little support. I mean, it was, uh, uh, it, it, things didn't go well on their side. But what did he mean by the mother of all wars? Well, that is a, a way of saying it's going to be a gigantic event. It was going to be a huge deal. And this evening in Acts chapter 1 and 2... We're going to look at the mother of all revivals. Uh, in other words, that, that it was unbelievable. And it also set the stage for all the revivals that were to come after it. Acts chapter 1 and 2, the day of Pentecost happens. And we as Christians think of it primarily as the day when the Holy Spirit came, which we'll see in a moment. But it was a... Uh, a Jewish uh, celebration and festival for years. In fact, if you were a Jewish man and you live within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you were supposed to, by law, uh, show up in Jerusalem for the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And remember, the Passover was when Jesus died. Remember that? Well, 50 days after the Passover comes Pentecost. In fact, Pentecost means 50th. And it was like our Thanksgiving. It was a celebration of the, the, uh, the wheat harvest, and it was a grand time. And it was also a time when there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. So it's a big, big event in the Jewish calendar, but it's going to be fixing to be a bigger, bigger event in Christian history. And what I want us to look at tonight is what preceded the revival coming, because I think these are fundamental principles that that if you and I, with a pure and sincere heart, will seek out as individuals and as a church, I think these are the timeless principles to see God continue to work and bring revival in our life and our church. Here's the first thing. What precedes revival? What is a key to revival? Number one, individual Christians must get right with God. You see, a revival, we grew up thinking a revival means a lot of people will be saved, right? It's long, boring meetings, and then a lot of people get saved. Well, hopefully it's not boring, but a revival, by definition, is God's people getting right with God. You don't revive something that's never been before. You following me? Technically, an awakening is an event where many lost people come to Jesus Christ. Awakenings normally follow revivals. When revivals happen and God's people get right with God, then lost people sense what's going on, see what's going on. They show up to, to be a part of it, and then they are saved. So they're not separate events. A lot of times they go hand in glove, but the revival is the first thing. And so when revival, for revival to happen, we don't need them out there to get right. We need to get right ourselves. Does it make sense? In chapter 1, verse 14, 
They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jesus had, uh, had been on earth 40 days after his death. There was going to be about a 10-day period between his ascension back to heaven and, and the day of Pentecost. What you see in, in just a little nutshell here is you see the unity and you see the togetherness. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But you see people who had a heart that was right with God. Probably in the next two or three chapters, which span several weeks and months, you, you probably see Christians and Christianity in the church more on target than it ever has been uh, or may ever will be. But one thing that was going on, folks, is you had individual believers who had a heart that was right with God. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. it's way over in the Old Testament. Kyle, I may not have given that to you, so don't worry about it. It's a great revival passage. It says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land and forgive their sin. Who, who does God call on to bring revival? Why, if those politicians would get right with God, we'd all be good. Folks, that may not ever happen. If those sorry Hollywood people would get right with God, we'd all be great. It doesn't start with them. It starts with us. If my people who are called by my name, if God's people will get serious once again with God, that's the key, that's the beginning point to God working in our midst. Gypsy Smith was an old revivalist probably 100 years ago. Gypsy Smith used to say, you want to see revival happen, you draw a circle around yourself and you start to pray and you ask God to send revival inside of that circle. And when revival is hit inside of that circle, revival is on its way to spreading. I want to challenge you tonight. Draw a circle around yourself. Revival comes not to, to buildings. It comes to people and it comes to God's people. It begins when God's people get their hearts right with God. Here's the second thing. Christians must be united. In verse 14, they were all joined together constantly in prayer. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, folks, I want to tell you, their togetherness was far more than just a um, uh, locality. It was not just talking about that they were physically together. You can take two cats, tie their tails together, and throw them over a clothesline, and they're united, but there's not unity. Amen? There is a difference. Unity is not uniformity. Unity does not mean we agree about everything. Folks, I've been married for a while, and you know my wife is wrong on a lot of issues, but we still have a great marriage. Amen? <laughs> Men, y'all agree with I mean, You know what I'm saying, don't you? Some of you cowards are going, oh, no, no. What, what I'm saying, we don't have to agree on everything. You can be wrong, and I'm okay with that. And you ought to be able to look at me and say, we love him. He's not real smart, but we love him. And that's okay. Unity doesn't mean that we agree about everything. It just means there's a oneness of spirit about us. You know, and I think this is true. Every, every election year you hear how divided our country is. I'm not sure that this isn't as divided as I can ever 
remember our country being. And it's hard to see good things happen. When even in a secular world, we're split. But when Christians can't get along, God's not going to show up. Please follow me on this. I think this is the biggest barrier to revival there is, period. I mean, yeah, we got to get right with God. But if we can't get along with each other, God's not going to show up. God is not going to show up if we can't get along with each other. You're going to talk about people. You're going to talk about your Sunday school teacher. Uh, you know, you don't wane the color blue shirt he's got on tonight. This just doesn't fit the carpet. You know, if we're going to nitpick and we're going to fight and we're going to gossip at each other as Christians, God's going to stand outside. He's going to stand outside. 1990, little church I pastor, we were getting ready for revival. We prayed for weeks. We were inviting people. We, uh, we set aside a day to fast and pray. I'll never forget. It was some of the, uh, some of the people in the church, it was their first time to ever fast. And this guy, a wonderful friend of mine, calls me. He goes, now, is it okay if I get a hamburger, get a cheeseburger and some fries, and I put it in a blender, and I blend it up and drink it? Is that okay? And I said, no, that's not okay. That, that's, don't, did Jesus do that in the desert? Of course he did. No, that's not okay. But we fasted and we prayed. We had a great preacher and we had a very average revival. And after it was over, I was so disappointed, but it was real easy as I began to look what happened. We, we had a church of about 50. We had a former member who sat outside, not literally, but he sat outside our church constantly telling everybody how bad we were. And we, and we didn't deal with that properly. And we had one or two people in the church that couldn't get along. They were always nitpicking, gossiping, talking about each other. And I think what happened, and I think Jesus just sat outside. said, I'd love to join you, but until you guys can get your act together, I'm not going to be in the middle of you. When the day of Pentecost came, you didn't have perfect Christians, but you had people who were seeking to be right with God, and they were looking at each other and saying, you know what? I love those people I'm with. They may not be perfect like I'm perfect, but we are going to get along, and we're going we're gonna to agree. We're going to be good. Unity. Here's the third thing, and you, you know this one. I, absolutely, Christians must pray. Christians must pray. I won't read it again. Verse 14, they met together constantly, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. You know, it, it, it's almost cliche in a church that's as established as ours it is to say that prayer is the key to revival, but prayer is the key to revival. And the truth is, we talk about prayer, we argue about prayer, we read about prayer, we don't pray very much, do we? I heard years ago someone said, if you've been a Christian 20 years, you ought to be praying an hour every day. How would you flesh out with that? Revival comes when God's people pray. In the little country of Wales, in 1904 to 1905, over about a six-month period in those two, year, in those two years, kind of interlapped six months, 100,000 people were saved in revivals and awakenings in that little country. I, that might be the equivalent of 30 million people saved in America in a six-month period. What you'd have to go back and study is there was a man named Evan Roberts who was a coal miner, a lay preacher, who had prayed for 13 years, for 13 years, that God would show up in Wales and that he would shake the country 
And you know what? God showed up in Wales, and he shook that country. South Korea has been a place for probably 30 years where, where some of the greatest movement of God is taking place in our world. Folks, here's something that's really sad, and it's scary. The greatest movements of God today are not in America. They're in South America, and they're in, in, in South Korea, and other parts of the world. That ought to scare us. America and and a lot of Europe is cold and stale. Paul Cho, pastor of the largest church in the world, one year, one year several years ago, they baptized 100,000 people in one year. And Dr. Cho was asked, what is the key to revival? He said, it's simple. You pray and you obey. You obey God and you pray and you pray and you pray. You want to see God show up? Pray that one minute a day. <laughs> pray on your Sign up and pray 30 minutes to an hour on that prayer chain. And then we don't stop praying when the revival starts. We continue to storm heaven. Folks, God honors prayer, and he works in the midst of prayer. Here's number four. The Holy Spirit must be in control. Who's in control of your life right now? Who's in control of of our church right now? I want to tell you who was in control of the lives of the, the Christians and in the church when Pentecost came. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were see, sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, folks, Jesus had gone back to heaven. He had promised the Holy Spirit was going to come. Up until this point, the Holy Spirit had not come to live in every believer. After this point, the Holy Spirit comes in to live in you at your salvation. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. But what preceded the Holy Spirit coming on these people was not only their relationship with God, but their right heart and their right relationship with God. Folks, we do not need another Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has already come. Like we don't need another crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus has already died and risen. It doesn't have to happen again. And if you're a Christian, you don't need to get more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to get more of you. You've got all of the Holy Spirit you were ever going to have the moment you gave your life to Christ. Baptism of the Spirit happens once. It happens when you were saved. Write this down if you're taking notes. Romans 8, 9. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. Romans 8, 9. Don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. All of the Holy Spirit you're going to ever need. The question is tonight, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Most of us have the Holy Spirit pushed up in our big toe. We got him there. He's safe and he won't invade too much of our space there, right? You know what the Holy Spirit needs to do something great in our lives and our church? We need to turn him loose. We don't need to control him. We need to let him go. Folks, being filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And, and the synonymous way of looking at it is to be surrendered to Jesus is to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? I get my, my life right with others and with God. And I surrender myself daily to Him and I let Him fill me.
But what happens in many lives and in many churches is we've, we've got just a trickle of the Spirit. We got enough of the Spirit that we still got a movement on the EKG. In other words, there's a little bit of life. Take your water hose. I would have loved to have done this in the church tonight, but Bernard would have killed me. You know, you take a water hose, and if the faucet and the hose are working correctly, you hook them up, you turn them on, water flows freely, doesn't it? You take that hose, and you begin to, to crunch it up just a little bit, and you notice the flow begins to decrease, doesn't it? And then if you completely, you really put the hammer down on it, Water may come out, but it's just going to be a little, little bit. You see, that's what we do to the Holy Spirit. To use our terms, it is like the Holy Spirit is the water and we're the hose. The only difference is the hose doesn't have a say whether it's quenched up or not, but we have a say whether we quench up the Holy Spirit. Sin in our life, bitterness, unforgiveness, junk we're not dealing with. Folks, you cannot have a wedding without a bride. And you can't have a revival without the Holy Spirit. When we pray, when we're unified, when we're seeking to be right with God, those are the things that free the Holy Spirit up in our lives. Here's a fifth thing. Christians got to tell people. Christians have to share their faith. This is an interesting thing that precedes the revival at Pentecost. In chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, Jews from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. In verse 11, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, if you were here several weeks ago, we, we talked about speaking in tongues and that it's, biblically, it's basically three different things. A private prayer language, a, a supernatural spiritual language that demands, if it's done in public, that there be someone with the gift of interpretation to interpret it. Or it is the ability to speak in a foreign tongue. How many of you tonight know German well? Okay, good, none. If you bumped into some Germans out here tonight who did not know English and you began to speak to them in German, how many of you agree it would be a miracle? Young people, please do not try this on your foreign language test at school. God give me the gift of tongues so I can pass this test. One of the things that tongues was and is, was this, what happened at Pentecost. The ability, they were speaking in a known language that they did not know. Not, not to show how super spiritual they were or to impress people, but they were sharing their faith with other people, is, is what that simply says. They were, they were witnessing to people. Folks, it just makes sense that God... God likes to come and make himself known where he is loved. Wouldn't that make sense? And and when Christians are full of the Holy Spirit and love Jesus, they're going to talk about him, correct? The answer to that is yes, strongly. You know who John Grisham is? Not some guy that lives over in South Ruston or whatever. 
the author John Grisham. John Grisham wrote, uh, he, he wrote a lot of books. He, he's, he's a very famous person now. But one of his first books was a book, Time to Kill, A Time to Kill. Any of y'all see that movie? It sold in hardback about 5,000 copies, which is not very good. Still about 4,900 more than my book sold, but it's still not real good. Then he wrote another book, The Firm. Any of you read or see that movie? Well, when he wrote The Firm, apparently people began to talk about it. Neither one of the books did he hire big publicity uh, people to go out and to publicize his book. He didn't do book tours and go speak and sign books all over. He just didn't want to do it, so he didn't do it. First book sold 5,000. But people began to talk about how good the book The Firm was. He sold 7 million in hard copies. Now, if you made $3 or $4 profit per book, that's a pretty good tithe, isn't it? Yes, you would, you would take it. And now he's, he's uh, very famous. In fact, at one time, probably 10 or 15 years ago, he had the best-selling, the number one paperback, the number two paperback, and number three paperback all at the same time, and the number one hardcover book, all number one, at, number two, and number two at the same time. Never happened before. And, folks, it all began not because of his great publicity, but because people liked what they read and experienced, and they told other people. You see where I'm coming with with this? See, we, we, could, we could tie Josh to a balloon and float him around town saying revival, which would be cool. It really would be. And he would do it. Revival, October the 7th through the 10th. Ron, Ronnie and Kenny would get pellet guns and shoot him down, and then that would be a disaster. But that'd be great. But the biggest key to getting people to come to church and to fall in love with Jesus is when they see that you're in love with Jesus. Do you know that? Well, if our preaching and our music was better, more people would come. You know what? People might come if you'd invite them. If you were fired up and you were fired up about Jesus, one of the things that happened before this awesome revival was the people went out. Now, they had to do it supernaturally. There were people from all over the world, Jewish people all over the world in Jerusalem who could not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And so God enabled them to speak to them in their own tongue. You don't probably have to worry about that in Ruston, okay? But what precedes revival is Christians sharing their faith. And here's the sixth thing, and that's the Word of God being proclaimed. In chapter 2, verse 14, after all these things we have seen, Peter stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you this. Listen carefully to what I say. And he began to preach to them about Jesus Christ. Folks, you've got to have the prayer, you've got to have the unity, you've got to have Christians right with God, Christians inviting and sharing their faith. And, and then, for whatever reason, the Bible says God works through the foolishness of preaching. Isn't that interesting? And I think foolishness there means that it doesn't necessarily make sense to the world that a person would get up and speak for 25 or 30 minutes and that God would use that, but God does. We're going we're gonna to meet five times, October the 7th through the 10th, what well, we got planned. Twice Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. 
And in our day and age, most people advise you not to have revivals because they say people are too busy and they won't come. May I challenge you tonight to come on those, those nights. We hadn't had a four-day revival in three years. We had one in 2009, and we knew you were so exhausted from that, we gave you a three-year break. Folks, you just don't know what will happen on Tuesday night. You don't know what will happen on Monday night. You don't know what God may say to you and your family member who you decide to skip the show or skip some event and come to church that one night. You never know what may happen. My first little church, we had a a precious senior citizen lady named Jackie. And Jackie had to be 75 when I was her pastor, which would make her in heaven tonight. And she told me her salvation story. She'd been saved as a kid. And she said she was saved in the second week of revival. How many of you in here remember when revivals went on for two weeks? We've We've got several hands. Young people, let me tell you how this used to be. When I was a kid, revival started on Sunday morning, and it went through the next Sunday night. And and that was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Back when our, these great, great, great grandparents of ours who raised their hands. I'm kidding, you guys. They they had two-week revivals. Can you imagine how the world would act today with a two-week revival? We couldn't handle that. She said, I was saved late in the second week of the revival. Parents made her go every night. And I've never forgot that because she said, you know, I think it took that time for the Holy Spirit to get through to me and to penetrate my heart. We're going to have somebody here who's very good at proclaiming the Word of God. Word of God needs to be proclaimed. And here's what happens when these things happen. Revival comes. Revival comes in in chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted the message and were baptized, about 3,000, did you get that? Were added to their number that day. Am I saying to you we're going to have 3,000 saved? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this. That when God's people get serious about seeking Him and doing things His way, God shows up. Whether it's three people or 300 people that are saved, God responds when Christians get right with Him. God responds when we pray, we have unity, when we're sharing our faith. God responds when His Word is preached and His name is lifted up. God shows up. And I want to tell you, When God showed up there, the same God is the same God today, and he can show up here. What do we need in our church? Well, we need a lot of things. Any church that's that's growing and moving forward always needs a lot of things. But I want to tell you what we need more than anything is a continual touch of God, a continual movement of God. Folks, if you, got, if you get the right books, and, and I would be happy, you email me this week. I'll share with you some. You could find, you won't find it in your, your secular history books, but that our world has been shaped by revivals. In the 1500s, a man named Martin Luther got right with God. And a revival started that changed the way Christianity is even done five, six hundred years later. 
In the 1700s, some historians believe that England was fixing to, to sink literally into the sea, that France was going to overrun it. It was so decadent. It was so uh, away from God. And John Wesley was a preacher who got saved, and God began to use him to bring revival in that country. And some church historians believe that it was through those revivals that that country was saved. I've seen it in, in almost every church I've pastored that when God comes in and he touches the church, it's never the same. What our country needs more than anything else is a revival. But we can't control necessarily what's going to happen in Nevada. But we can have a big say what happens here. And I want to ask you this evening, will you and I make the commitment? Will we do our part so the doors are open and that Jesus is welcome to come in? We're going to have an invitation in just a moment. If you're not a Christian, and you come tonight and give your life to Christ. Maybe you'd like to join our church. We would love for you to do that. You can come and do that tonight. But every Christian here, be it where you're standing, or praying with a minister, or kneeling and praying at the altar, I want to ask you today, can, can we move ourselves from apathy and laziness after God to say we're willing to do whatever it takes to see God work in our lives in church? I promise you he'll show up if we will. Let's stand. As God leads you tonight, you respond to him.